today we're looking at Acts 19, and uh, you know we we took a couple week break there. Patrick took a couple weeks and did a great job teaching on Acts 17 and 18, and then we did the foot washing um, service and um, read through the crucifixion of Yeshua. But today we're going to jump back in it. We're in Acts chapter 19, and you know. Um, we're kind of now in the tail end of the book of Acts. There's 28 chapters in Acts. So it's kind of, at this point, you're either really into it or you're starting to get fatigued by Acts. But I'll tell you right now, it's about to get really exciting, and this is a really intense part of Acts. Um, if you remember, the, the main character so far has kind of become the Apostle Paul, or Shaul. And he's kind of become this person. Remember when he was called, Yeshua says... He, because his persecution of the way, of the movement, of, of us, he has to know how to suffer now for my name's sake. And that was right there, kind of intrinsic in his calling. And what we're going to see, pay attention to this, as we progress through the rest of the book of Acts, we have nine chapters left of this. Watch what Luke does. Luke is going to draw some parallels now between Paul suffering. Watch, Paul is out in the outlying areas. And he's going to go up to Jerusalem. And then he's going to suffer at the hands of Gentiles. So pay attention to that. And he's going to be martyred at the hands and executed at the hands of Gentiles. Not in the book of Acts. It comes later. Luke concludes it before he's martyred. But it sounds a lot like, and Luke may be trying to draw some parallels to the suffering of Yeshua. He's working in the countryside. Then he goes up to Jerusalem. He makes this final entrance into Jerusalem. And then he suffers and he's kind of betrayed by his own brethren, and then he's executed at the hands of the Gentiles. And I think Luke is trying to draw those parallels that Paul, remember he's trying to establish Paul's credibility, um, and he's trying to establish Paul is an apostle of Yeshua. And look, I will show you how he suffers just like him. At, it, it, he loses everything for the sake of the gospel. So pay attention to that as we progress through the book of Acts. But one of the things, someone asked me this past week, or maybe it was week before last, um, is a really good question, and one that I take for granted, is how did Yeshua's name go from Yeshua to Jesus? And some of you probably know this in this room, you're like very well versed in this, but for those who aren't, can I take just five minutes and go through the evolution of the name of Jesus real quick, and kind of dispel some myths about that too? Well, let me start with, up here I wrote on the board ahead of time, Yeshua is a Hebrew word. It actually describes an action. It means to save. It's salvation. Um, it's a more expanded version of this would be Yehoshua or Joshua. And that's a, that's a Hebrew name. Um, this is a shortened version, abbreviated version of Yehoshua, okay? Which would be like God's salvation. And this is just salvation. And this appears all over the Hebrew Bible not explicitly talking about Yeshua, but rather talking about the idea of salvation. All right? However, as we get into the New Testament, well, let me lay back up and say that this is the name that Yeshua's mother, Miriam, would have given to him. And she would have called him Yeshua, and he would have been called that all his life as Yeshua. Okay? His early followers likely called him that as well. But the writers of the New Testament are writing to a uh, largely Greek-speaking audience, right? So they're going to write a lot of things in the Greek language so that their Greek audience can understand it. But well, we got a problem with Yeshua uh, in the Greek language. There's a couple different problems. Number one, in the Greek language, there is a lack of a Y sound, like a Y, Y sound, okay? Also, in the Greek language, it's typical that a male name, a masculine name, ends with either an a, a OS or a US. 
like Paulos or Titus. Can you think of another one? Any other OS? Huh? Julius. Julius. Yeah, you get the idea. Mattathias. Yeah, exactly. Those are good male Greek names, okay? It'd be like if you called me like Rachel. You understand Rachel is typically a female name. That would just be weird if a guy is like uh, Johnny Cash on a boy named Sue, right? We understand in our culture there are female names, there are masculine-sounding names. There's names that could go either way. But as they're pulling the name Yeshua into the Greek audience, into Greek readers, they need to, ca they need to capture that ya sound as closely as possible. However, there's no equivalent. So the best way to do that is this, this I, I sound. It's the closest thing you can get to a ya. So it becomes I-shua. There's another problem, though. There's no SH sound in the Greek language. So we soften it to a I-su-a. However, we got to add that masculine ending on it. So it becomes I-su-s. I-su-s. Not would be more, yeah, it would be I-su-s. Exactly. Iesus. Now, fast forward uh, 2,000 years, the English language pops up on the radar. And English language is only about 400 years, give or take, old. Well, as Bibles begin to get translated into English, uh, roughly the year 1611 by King James is one of the most prominent ones. In 1611, they translate his name like this, Isus. And if you actually get a hold of a 1611 King James Bible, you'll see that in there. It's I-E-S-U-S, -S, like that. It's not J Jesus. Okay, it's actually Isus in a 1611 Bible. Well, because of the Germanic influence on the English language, and as the Bible begins to be translated into these Germanic languages in the, in the German language, we change that I sound into a J sound. But even it's retained in some Spanish, in, in, in Spanish Bibles. Uh, this is a Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But it, it, because of our Germanic influence on English, it becomes a harder Jesus, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's kind of like our own doing in the past 400 years that it's, We've kind of just changed it into G, like a longer E, a long E sound. Jesus, okay, has nothing to do with Zeus. It's not Hail Zeus or anything like that. Hey, hey Zeus, it's not that at all. It's just what was a Hebrew name for a Galilean rabbi has made its way through like three to three and a half different languages. And by the time we read it in our NIV Bibles or whatever you read it in, we're going, we're so used when we look at it, we say Jesus. So that's the evolution of that. I wanted to kind of explain that, but also dispel some myths. It has nothing to do with Zeus, but it has everything to do with grammatical and, and linguistic rules in different cultures and languages. I hope that helps. But so we call him Yeshua because that's what his mother called him. However, if you call him Jesus, did you know you're not sinning? <laughs> did you know if you call him Yeshua and not Jesus, you're not spiritually more mature? You're not smarter? You don't know him better? There are people that I have met personally, many people I've met personally, that exclusively have known him as Jesus all their lives and better embody his character than people who dogmatically say you have to pronounce it Yeshua. 
So I have to deduce from that that whatever syllables come out of your mouth don't really mean anything. It's rather studying scripture and knowing the character and the heart of Jesus and modeling that to people around you and being transformed by that. So don't get hung up on that stuff. It's not salvific. It's not sinful. Call him Yeshua. I'm, I might go back to calling him Iesus. I don't know. No, but I like Yeshua because it means something. It means salvation, and it's a beautiful name, and that's that's what I call him. Question? There is one thing you do want to warn people about. Never say Yeshu. Yeah. Yeah, over time, that's a good point. Over time, uh, in, in Orthodox Judaism, uh, they've shortened Yeshua to Yeshu, which is, becomes a, uh, it's an acronym, which basically means may his name be blotted out. So that's a, it's a kind of a derogatory nickname for him. But anyways, I just want to go on that tangent right there and just thank you for your attention. For those who already know that, um, thank you for bearing with us. Um, let's go to Acts 19. But before we do, let's quick, do a quick review and overview of Acts so far. Because you took a week off, and I want to make sure you guys remember the book of Acts. Up until this point, remember, Paul has written only the following letters. Okay, only the following letters. Oh, thank you, sorry. He's written 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, he's written 1st Corinthians, and he's written Galatians, he's written 2nd Corinthians, and then Romans, in that order. Okay? So, right away, now we're at, at Acts 18 and Acts 19, Paul begins to write these letters to these different congregations, which he's visited in person in Asia Minor. So, let's ask some questions now. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke did, yeah. It's his second major work second to that of Luke. What is the major theme the author or Luke is trying to convey or a major question he's trying to answer through this work? Yeah, Jeremy and Bob, do Gentiles have a place in the age to come? And if so, what do they have to do to get there? That's, Luke is very focused on that. What's another question that he's trying to answer or he's trying to educate our friend Theophilus on? Anybody? Just dumb. So what do the Gentiles have to do? What do the Gentiles have to do? Yeah. Remember I said it earlier too, he's trying to establish the credibility of Paul. Or he's he's not trying to establish that. Paul has the credibility. Rather, he's 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 trying to uh, to explain that and to exemplify that. Um, another one maybe might be he's trying to educate us on the essence of the Godhead. And remember, he's used the Holy Spirit all throughout this text and the personhood of the Holy Spirit all throughout this text. And um, anything else? Yeah. A whole bunch of messages about salvation. A lot of messages about salvation, yeah. He's giving us a very fundamental view of, of salvation and the gospel and what it is and what it isn't. In what language was Acts originally written? Greek. The Greek language, yeah. And then about how many years does it cover in our movement's history? No. The only way I remember it is it's almost equal to the number of chapters. About 30 years of history in our movement that it's going to cover. Okay. And then where, uh, what are the three biblical names of our movement that we find? The way. The Nazarenes. Notrim, and Christians. We're called the Christian. Yeah. The one that's used the most of those three terms is the way. The way. And wasn't Christians supposed to? Is originally derogatory, yeah. Did the followers of Yeshua see themselves as forming a new religion or faith? No, they didn't. They saw themselves as the fulfillment of the prophecies given in the Hebrew Bible. 
that the, they, they saw themselves as, as adherents to the promised Messiah of Israel, right? And they didn't see themselves breaking away from their roots, their biblical roots. You've got to remember that for the first couple hundred years, they didn't own a part of their Bible that we would now call the New Testament. They went off of the Hebrew Bible as their moral code of conduct and where they extracted how they are to live out their faith. You've got to remember that. So as long as America has been a nation, they did not have a part of their Bible called the New Testament. Think about that. All right. I want to pick up here and show you a map of where we're going to be focused today, and that is the city of Ephesus. This is in um, what is modern-day Turkey, what was then formerly known as Greece, uh, Asia Minor, and now in this time as we're reading it, is encompassed and swallowed up by the Roman Empire. All right, and that's kind of, we're right here on the eastern coast, of the, we're now in like Asia Minor. Tarsus is going to be over here. Uh, my, it's over here more. My pointer came. Yeah, yeah. So Ephesus was the second largest city in all of the Roman Empire. Massive city. And did lots of international commerce and business with people from all around the Roman Empire. People from as far away as Alexandria and Egypt to Judea. Um, up into Europe and northern Europe, people would come to this place. And Ephesus, because of its proximity to the coast, had a port. It was a port town. And so it had a, a wonderful port. The Romans loved to, to build ports. They built great ports. And where you have ports, you have lots of goods being exchanged and money being exchanged, but also lots of ideas and religions and concepts and philosophies being exchanged in port towns. That's still true to this day, whenever you go to a port town. The city of Ephesus was positioned and kind of oriented around a central road. And that central road was, it ran perpendicular to the coastline. And then at the very end of this road was, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the largest Roman theater ever built. It sat 25,000 people in this Roman theater. And that's it right there. That's the remnants of it. This Roman theater was used for everything from gladiatorial games, uh, discussions on philosophy and law. They would do theatrical displays there and put on plays and dramas. Um, there's one uh, historian that believed that they would actually have had ways in aqueducts where they would flood the theater floor and they would do naval battle reenactments in this theater. Can you picture that? 25,000 people could fit in this theater. And as you're sitting in the arena here in this theater, you would look out over the coast. You would see the harbor and you would see the ships coming in and out and the symbols of prosperity and economic stability of this nation. One of the um, seven wonders of the ancient world was this building right here. And this is an artistic rendering of this building. It's called the Library of Celsus. And you've got to remember that in the Roman and Greco-Roman world, the quest for wisdom and knowledge and deep insight into philosophy or spiritualism was a big deal to those people. And this library hosted anywhere between 12 to 15,000 scrolls and works and texts. And it was a massive library where you could go in there and you could look at the, you could probably find the Hebrew Tanakh the Hebrew Bible of the Israelites, but you could also look at some of the works of like Plato and Socrates and everybody else. 
And you can go in there and do that. Um, this is uh, what it looks like today. I'm not sure who that guy is standing in front of it. No, I'm just kidding. That's my dad standing in front of it. That's my dad in Ephesus. He and my mom went back into Ephesus. But this is what it looks like to this day. This is the library of Celsus. You see it's kind of in ruins. Um, certain parts of it have been reconstructed. But this is um, out front of the library of Celsus. Let me back a couple photos here. Out front of the library of Celsus, you see there's four main statues they would have up here. And two down here. These represent the four, like, essences of being a good Roman. And um, one of them uh, is wisdom. Does anyone know the Greek word for wisdom? Sophia. Sophia. Yeah, I'm looking at Sophia. Sophia, and this is a uh, uh, the statue of Sophia. The, she's the, thought to be the, the essence of wisdom, okay? But those would, as you're walking into the library, you see these four statues which represent the four great virtues of being a good Roman citizen. Um, something funny uh, oh, there he is again, <laughs> standing in front of a, uh, a carving there and engraving. Does anyone want to guess what goddess this is that he's standing in front of? No, but good guess. Yeah. No, good guess. This is the goddess. Some of you may look down at your shoes. This is the goddess Nike. <laughs> Nike, yeah. She was, she was the, the goddess of victory. She controlled which armies would be victorious in battle. And I don't know if my dad knew who, who that was, but he was just being goofy. But the goddess of victory. And so it's thought that if your army went to battle, if you made enough sacrifices to the goddess Nike before going to battle, she would open her wings over your army and swoosh over your army. And that swoosh is what propelled your army to victory. And that's where we get the Nike swoosh. Remember that? that? Yeah, so that's where that comes from. But... Generals would make sacrifices to her here in Ephesus, okay? You got to remember that in the Greco-Roman world, there is no exclusivity. There is no monotheism. When you come into Ephesus, you choose what God you want to go up and make a sacrifice to or pray to or offer incense to, and they have a wide variety of gods and goddesses there. One of the funny things, um, anyone want to guess what these are? <laughs> yeah, these are latrines, yeah. The Romans loved public restrooms. They built a lot of public restrooms. There's some in Beit Shan you can go to in Israel. Um, one of the funny things they would do, and you, you go in there, you know, there's no privacy, first of all. Uh, men and women, there's, it's all, it's all um, combined. Uh, but you go in there, and one of the funny things they did, they did this in Beit Shan in Israel, definitely. But they would have these kind of a rectangular shape of public latrines. And you'd go in there, and you would do your business, you know, and you'd look across and you could be conversing with people that are visiting town and, and you have these conversations and, you know, you could get to know them and everything. But one of the funny things they did is they would have a little pool of water in the middle of that rectangle. So as you're sitting there and you look across, there's a little, and there might be like some, some fish in this little pool. But one of the things they did is they populated it heavily with bullfrogs and lots of different frogs and things. The thought process, yeah, Karen knows where I'm going with this. The thought process being, and it stumped archaeologists for a long time, the thought process being that the frogs would be so noisy, it would mask the noises of Patrick doing his business there in the latrine. So, sorry, Patrick. I told you you didn't know what you started. I told you. So, you know, Patrick and Alexis could be sitting there conversing, listening to the frogs and all that. No, that's... Yeah, yeah. I was wondering why you have all those frogs at your house. Yeah. 
He's like, oh, no, those were not frogs. <laughs> Another funny feature of the city of Ephesus, remember that library I showed you with the fifteen to 20,000 scrolls in it? Remember that, or twelve to 15,000 scrolls in it? Well, next door to that was a building called the House of Love. All right? Um, the House of Love is what you imagine it would be. It was a, a single hallway with a lot of bedrooms off to the side. It was a brothel. All right? Prostitution was legal and celebrated in Ephesus. So the funny thing is, archaeologists believe that from the library to the House of Love, or sometimes called the House of Pleasure, there was an underground tunnel. So you and your wife go to Ephesus and you say, honey, go to the market and look for whatever, you know, and, and feel free to buy some things for yourself, some souvenirs and that sort of thing while I go study Plato's works in the library. Get where I'm going? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, the, that's what's going on in, in Ephesus at the time. And uh, you can see here, they know that because there's a heart and there's a foot and there's money symbols. And it's just basically kind of like a code of like, this is a house where you can pay for that sort of thing. The house of love. So the this is the inside of it. Make a fast retreat back. Exactly, yeah. So you could go in there discreetly. Yep. And people would think that you're just studying in the library. The focal point of the city of Ephesus was this right here. The temple to the goddess Artemis. And it is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world as well. And to the left there, you see a statue that was found of the goddess herself. The goddess, she was thought to be, they called her the Ephesian. She was the great goddess of, of Ephesus. And she was the, definitely the, the focal point. She was, uh, you know, you've got to remember the, the Greco-Roman world was divided into these city-states, and each city-state kind of had its, its own deity. And when the Romans came in and conquered different parts of the world, they would um, give allowances for the people, the pre-existing deities that were there, to continue to be worshipped and kind of absorbed into the Roman, Roman world. But you see, uh, she's got a lot going on here. Uh, these are thought to be eggs, but could also be breasts. No one's really sure. But regardless, what do you think that's a symbol of? And what do you think she's the goddess for? Fertility. Exactly. Fertility and prosperity. Okay? Those are symbols of those things. But you would go in there and you would offer uh, sacrifices to Artemis in this temple. Um, the temple burned, uh, I think, in the 4th century BC, if I'm not mistaken. It actually burned to the ground. Uh, you got to remember that these roofs would have been made out of wood and marble. Um, when it ex is exposed to a lot of heat, marble cracks and crumbles. So this building was set on fire by a madman back in the 4th century BC. And he burnt it to the ground. And he's like, you know what? I want my name to be in history. What's the best way to do that? Uh, set the temple of Artemis on fire. Well, his name made it into history. But his name was not allowed to be spoken anywhere in the Roman world because it was actually banned. You could not speak his name. Question. What are those two statues on either? Those are sheep. Yeah. So you got to remember that's that's going on. It was rebuilt. It took over a year to rebuild the temple. And as Paul is entering Ephesus, this is what he would have seen, was all this stuff going on, being surrounded by all these images and idols and statutes and, and prostitution, um, lots and lots of quests for knowledge and mysticism and searching for answers and, and the library and all this stuff going on. And, and Paul walks into this scene. I mean, so much stuff that is anti-Torah, right? So much stuff that is just ungodly. And Paul, the Pharisee, is stepping foot in this environment. 
and he's about to share the gospel. And that, that's where we, this is what the Temple of Artemis looks like today. There is one lone pillar left, and even that was set up uh, as a reconstruction. They're about 60 feet tall, um, around 130 of these pillars. And that is the Basilica of John the Apostle back there. It's believed that John was buried in Ephesus after his martyrdom, or after his death, I should say, not a martyrdom. And it's also believed that Mary, the mother of Yeshua, is buried in Ephesus. Uh, they get this from the idea that when Yeshua is crucified, Yeshua says to John, she is your mother and he is your son. And, he, and it says in that text that he took her into his household. And so it's believed that John went to Ephesus, thus taking Miriam with him, the mother of Yeshua, and they both die and they live out their days in Ephesus right there. But that's, not, that's much later in the 90s and, and around the turn of the century. Before we jump into Acts 19, we've got to review something real quick, and we won't take long to do it. But if you want to go to Acts chapter 1, I want to review some of these big, important concepts real quick, but it shouldn't take long. Acts 1.5. Acts 1.5. I'm going to go ahead and read while you guys are going there. At one of these gatherings, he instructed them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the fa Father had promised. I'm on verse 4. Which you heard about from me. For John used to immerse people in water, but in a few days you will be immersed in the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. Okay? In Greek, the Pneuma Hagion. Now let's go over to Acts 2.38. Acts 2.38. Just a couple pages over. Acts 2.38. Peter answered them. Kepha answered. Turn from sin. Return to God. And each of you will be immersed into the authority of Yeshua the Messiah, into forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you, for your children, and for those far away, as many as the Lord my God may call. Now let's go to Acts 11.16. Acts 11.16. Acts 11.16. And it says, And I remembered that the Lord had said that Yochanan, John, used to immerse people in water but you will be immersed in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as us, uh, after we had come to put our trust in the Lord Yeshua the Messiah, who is I to stand in God's way. It's talking about Cornelius and the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit. So what's the theme there? The theme is you are immersed in the authority of Yeshua, then you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. All right? There's a baptism in water. There's a baptism in the Holy Spirit. How many of you were at the beach on Sunday and you saw the baptism, the, the immersion, the mikvah that took place? Um, we immersed in water. And then we went up and we prayed for the immersion in the Holy Spirit. Remember that? Okay. It's kind of a two-step process. And there, it bears out in the Bible. Now, let's go to Acts 19. And that's going to make a lot more sense now that we've, we've done that legwork. Acts 19, verse 1. While Apollos was in Corinth, Shaul completed his travels through the inland country and arrived at Ephesus, where he found a few of the disciples there. And that's Luke's favorite way to describe the believers as disciples. He asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you came to trust? No, they said to him. We have never even heard there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit, the Ruach Kodesh. And uh, he said, into what were you immersed then? The immersion of John, they answered. Well, Shaul, Shaul said, well, Yochanan, John, he practiced an immersion in connection with turning from sin to God. But he told people to put their trust in the one who would come after him, that is Yeshua. On hearing this, they were immersed into the name of the Lord Yeshua. And when Saul placed his hands on them, 
the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began to speak in other glossais, in other tongues. And they began to, in the Greek, it's literally prophesy. In all, there were about 12 of these men. So you see that two-step process being fulfilled there by, by Paul. The immersion in water, the immersion in the, in the, the saving knowledge of Yeshua, and then the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, so Saul went into the synagogue. Remember, he's not going to First Baptist or anything like that. He's going to the synagogues. That's where his people are that are waiting for the Messiah. And for three months, he spoke out boldly, engaging in dialogue and trying to persuade people about the kingdom of God. But some began hardening their, themselves and refusing to listen. And when these started defaming the way, there's that name for our movement, before the whole synagogue, Paul withdrew. He took the disciples with him and commenced holding daily dialogues in the, in the, the school of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that everyone, both Jews and Greeks, living in the province of Asia, heard the message about the Lord. So Paul lived in Ephesus for two years, debating and dialoguing with these people and being surrounded and fully immersed in this culture. There's just nasty stuff that's going on around him. But he's there, two years, he's doing that. Verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. For instance, handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were brought to six people. They would recover from their ailments and evil spirits would leave them. Then some Jewish exorcists who traveled from place to place tried to make use of the name of the Lord Yeshua in connection with people who had evil spirits. Now remember what I said about up there on the board, what I wrote. It's not about what syllables come out of your mouth. It's about the character that you embody and the testimony that you have with that character, right? So here's what they would do. They're going to try to make use of that. They say, I exercise you by the name of Yeshua that Paul is proclaiming. And one time, seven sons of a Jewish Arkyrios, which is like a, like a high-ranking priest, named Sceva, they were doing this. And the evil spirit answered them. It said, Yeshua I know. And Paul, I recognize, but who are you? When the man with the evil spirit came upon them, he overpowered them and gave them such a beating that they ran from the house naked and bleeding. So apparently, it's not just about syllables. Are you got me? It's about walking and having the testimony and the lifestyle and the character of our master and savior. Verse 17, when all this became known to the residents of Ephesus, Fear fell on all of them, Jews and Greeks alike. And the name of the Lord Yeshua came to be held in high regard. Many of those who had earlier, who had earlier made professions of faith now came and admitted publicly their evil deeds. Picture this going on in Ephesus. And a considerable number of those who had engaged in occult practices, they threw their scrolls in a, in a sterilite tub and donated them all to goodwill. Doesn't say that? What do they do with them? They put them in a pile and burn them in public. When they calculated the value of these scrolls, it came to 50,000. And just in the Greek, it just says 50 silvers, 50 pieces of silver. We don't know if that's a denarii or if that's a talent. Let me give you the numbers, though, the math, if it's either of those. We don't know for sure. Drachmas, yeah, it's not there. Drachma is assumed. If it's a denarii, if, the, if all these documents that they burn in the streets are 50,000 denarii, that would be equivalent in today's money to five and a half million dollars. Oh, wow. 
insane, right? If what they're talking about there, if what Luke is saying, 50,000 are talons, which is a, the next level up of silver, that would be $1.5 billion in today's standards that they're burning in the streets. We don't know which one of those it is, but still a lot of money, isn't it? If I had $5.5 million worth of uh, like literature in my home, I'd be really slow to take it out and burn it in the street. But that speaks to the level of conviction they fell under because of the Holy Spirit moving in their lives. Now, how do we apply that today? <laughs> we, as believers and followers of Messiah, have to be very cognizant of the slow creep that occult practices tend to make into our homes. And they can come in ways that are very innocent, very benign, and they can kind of normalize certain things and you know, like, oh, that's just a, he's a good witch or something like that. But be very cognizant of that because it becomes a slow boil. You want to be someone who is able and ready and willing that the Holy Spirit lays something on your heart. You take that out of your house, whether it's a video game, whether it's a movie, whether it's a board that moves around on its own, or it's a series of books. Take them out and destroy them if the Holy Spirit tells you to do that. Because your house is like a temple. It should be pure, right? And to think that that's not going on today, you're very ignorant. It's going on today, and that slow creep and invasion into your home is probably going on, and it's probably going on in a more innocent-looking way. Be very cognizant of that. Verse 21. Some time later, Paul decided in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem. Here's where it's going to get interesting. He's deciding the spirit is telling him. It's not Paul deciding. I had a guy one time tell me, well, Paul's making a mistake by going to Jerusalem. That's why he shouldn't have done that. No, the spirit is telling Paul, I need you to get ready to go to Jerusalem. He's obeying what the spirit is telling him to do. And then go up to Jerusalem. He says, and after I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome. And he's going to get a trip to Rome free of charge. So he dispatched two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia. But he himself remained in the province of Asia for a while. Verse 23. It was at this time that a major fur arose concerning the way. A disagreement arose in our movement. There was a, a silversmith named Demetrius who, who manufactured silver objects. I shouldn't say in our movement. I should say because of our movement. He manufactured silver objects connected with the worship of the goddess Artemis. Uh-oh, there she is. We'll go back. There she is. The goddess Artemis. And Demetrius, and he provided no small amount of work for the craftsmen. So Demetrius was like a foreman. He was like a broker for all these little statues and idols that all these craftsmen would make. And Demetrius took some off the top of that and was probably like a wholesale broker of these little idols. So what did he do? He called a meeting of them and those engaged in the similar trades. And he said, men, you understand that this line of business provides us our living. And you can see and hear for yourselves that not only here in Ephesus, but in practically the whole province of Asia, this Paul has convinced and turned away a considerable crowd by saying that men make gods aren't gods at all. Now, the danger is not only that the reputation of our trade will suffer. Oh, and yeah, by the way, that the, the great temple of Artemis will come to be taken lightly. That's, a, that's important too, right? 
No, it will end up with the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia, and indeed throughout the whole world, being brought down from her divine majesty. And we're going to lose a lot of money. <laughs> so verse 26, hearing this, they were filled with rage, and they began bellowing, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. As one man, the mob rushed into the theater. Remember that theater I showed you? Dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Paul himself wanted to go and appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Paul does that. Paul's like, oh no, I'll, I'll go. I'll go talk. <laughs> he has no regard for his personal safety, right? Verse 31. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of his, sent a message begging Paul not to risk entering the theater. And meanwhile, some were shouting one thing and others something else because the whole assembly was in complete confusion and the great majority didn't even know why they were there. That's how, that's how protests go sometimes, isn't it? People are like, oh yeah, let's go out there, pitchforks and torches, let's set stuff on fire. That's, yeah, I don't know, I have no idea why I'm here, I'm doing this, but I don't know, I've got daddy issues, or I'm mad, I'm angry, or whatever, let's go do this. But what's the cause? I don't know, right? That's how you can tell a real move of God from one that's not, just a move of man, is there's, there's rampant confusion. There's little cohesion in the message. There's little cohesion in, the, in the, the idea and the thrust behind this movement. There's just, everybody just wants something for themselves. And that's how we see a lot of protests go here, sometimes even recently in our, in our past. Some of the crowd explained the situation to Alexander, whom the Jews had pushed to the front. So Alexander mentioned for silence, hoping to make a defense speech to the people. But as soon as they recognized that he was a Jew, how do you think they recognized he was a Jew, by the way? He's clothing, maybe? They began following in unison. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And they kept this up for two hours. Goodness. And sometimes it's hard for me, Gabe Rutledge, to stand and sing worship songs for 25, 30 minutes. <laughs> Whew, for two hours. 35. At last, the city clerk was able to quiet the crowd down. He said, men of Ephesus, if there is anyone who doesn't know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone which fell from the sky, since this is beyond dispute, you'd better calm down and not do anything rash. For you have brought these men here who have neither robbed the temple nor insulted our goddess. So if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and the judges are there. Let them bring these charges and countercharges. See, Roman officials did not like riots. They were big on that. They didn't want there to be a, a, a civil disturbance, okay? And it was, it was a very um, severe offense if you allowed a, servant, a, a, a civil disturbance or a riot to happen in your province. Verse 39. But if there is something more you want, it will have to be settled in a lawful ecclesia. You see that ecclesia? That's an assembly, yeah. For we are in danger of being accused of rioting on account of what has happened today. There's no justification for this. And if we are asked, we will be unable to give any reason as to this disorderly gathering. And with these words, he dismissed the whole ecclesia. Okay? So ecclesia doesn't, it cannot mean exclusively the idea of a church. It's not this new entity called the church. Ecclesia is just a generic Greek word, which means a unified assembly, a, a gathering of people. Now, it is often used to describe the way, because we're often a gathering of people, a unified gathering and a collection of people, but it's not, a, it's not the best way to call us. It, we're not the ecclesia. We are in ecclesia, 
but we're not the ecclesia because it's a very generic term. But that's just kind of a technicality I want to make you aware of. So as we read Acts chapter 19, I extrapolated some lessons. Number one was, remember when Paul walked into Ephesus? What did he do to these disciples that he found? Number one, if you look at verse one, he found them. <laughs> when he goes into Ephesus, he's thinking to himself, let me see if there's any believers here. And if so, I want to link up with them. I want to find them and associate with them and, and ascertain where they're at with things. And number two, he recognizes them as disciples. How did he do that? Probably conversing with them. Some of them may have been Jews. Some of them may have been non-Jews. And then thirdly, what does Paul do in verse 2? He examines their beliefs. And he determines that they were open-hearted, but lacking knowledge of some key parts of what God was doing in the movement. So notice Paul is not going in there like, oh, why are you guys doing it that way? He's not like bludgeoning them with things. He's, he's inquiring of them. What are you guys at with this stuff? Where are you at with immersion in the Holy Spirit? Right? And then fourthly, he pursued specifics of their background to determine where the breakdown occurred in their spiritual formation. So he's like, okay, what do you know so far? Okay, where did you get that from? Did you ever hear this, right? That's what a good teacher does. A good teacher is what it's, what's called formative assessment. A good teacher kind of says, okay, what do you know so far? I want to hear from you. All right, and I did that earlier when we did the review. I was like, what do you guys know so far? It's called formative assessment because I don't want to teach you something and spend a lot of time on something you don't already know, but at the same time, I don't want to teach you something if I haven't laid the foundation for that something yet. Paul's a, a wonderful teacher here, and he's doing that. And then what does he do? He instructs them in specific scriptures concerning the truths they were missing. So now he's going to take scripture, and he's going to fill in the holes of their theology. And then in verse 5 of chapter 19, the disciples accepted this teaching and then publicly displayed this obedience. They went and they were, they had their, they, they, they went through a mikvah, they were immersed in water, and then Paul laid hands on them and they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues, began to prophesy. And then lastly, they God empowered the people and led them to the next step of their journey. And now the church, the ecclesia, let's call it, the way is going to flourish within the city of Ephesus because of that. Did you have a question? No, when they, when they, let me clarify that. When you said they spoke in tongues, what does that mean? Because I mean, some of us came out of, out of their charismatic um, um, background. So yeah. We've seen a lot of wild stuff. So when they spoke in tongues, was that like they spoke other languages of, of that current period? Or they spoke yeah. in the spiritual tongues? That some, you know, well, what's that mean? let's take it this way. Let's look back at Acts chapter 2. And what happened in Acts chapter 2? Because they, that's the same Greek word that's being used in Acts chapter 2. The context of that lends itself to they were, they were speaking other languages that were known by those areas. Um, so I have to, if I'm, if I'm going to read this in context, I'm going to assume that they were speaking other languages. However, I am still open to the possibility of it being a prayer language and an utterance of, of an unknown language that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 16, if I'm not mistaken. I'm looking for somebody to correct me on that. 14? 14 or 16? There is this prayer language that can be spoken under the utterance of the Holy Spirit. Is that what's going on here? I don't know. Because unfortunately, sometimes those terms are used interchangeably. So I don't know. I'm going to assume in this passage that they're speaking in other languages. 
which would be beneficial and very utilitarian in a port town to have people from all over Asia Minor and North Africa and everywhere else to suddenly have a bunch of people who can miraculously speak other languages. So the prayer language and this is the same word? Sometimes they are used interchangeably, yeah. So to answer your, your, your question, I'm going to go with I don't know. <laughs> but I'm going to lean towards known languages of that world, of that age. Yeah, I hope that helps. So good question, though. Very good question. Um, another lesson I extrapolated from Acts 19. The gospel should bring clarity into the world and not confusion. And we see those being juxtaposed here in Acts chapter 19. Paul goes into Ephesus. He finds disciples. He brings them clarity. And then great things happen for the movement. Then what happens with Demetrius? Mass confusion. All right? Mass confusion. And then lastly, the last lesson I learned is the world is going to say this to you, especially the generation of the young lady sitting on this, this row right here. Live and let live, but don't mess with my livelihood. Got me? Yeah, that's fine, that's fine. Yeah, you can do that. But as soon as you touch my pocketbook, my dad used to always say, oh, you think you don't have an idol in your life? Give me your checkbook, and I'll look at it and tell you whether or not you have an idol. That's back when people used to write in checkbooks. Remember, we used to keep a ledger of like where we wrote the check to. So I, I could paraphrase it like this. Show me your credit card activity, and I'll tell you whether or not you have an idol in your life. All right? Or we could watch for the Amazon delivery guy. <laughs> that's, in my, that's in my house anyways. <laughs> um, kind of, kind of uh, secondary to all that, Ephesus was a port town. Ephesus was reliant upon the health of this port. And Ephesus had a problem. Because the river that fed to this port and washed into this port would oftentimes wash a lot of sediment into the port and make it too shallow for ships to come in. And the Romans would always have to drudge it out. And there's a lot of work. And as the Roman Empire started weakening in its power and, and its um, ability to provide that kind of infrastructure, guess what? The port got shallow. And Ephesus dried up economically. But if we look at it at a spiritual level, Ephesus is a failing state, even with a deep port. Okay? Why? Here are some symptoms of a failing society. There's an obsession with acquisition of knowledge, mysticism, and spirituality with little to no grounding in the word of truth, scripture. Okay? Secondly, mass sexual perversion. Now, I know that these are big boy, big girl topics, but homosexuality and pedophilia open and often celebrated in the Roman world. Got me? And I've said this in the past and I'll say it again. Watch for, in the next five to ten years, the abrasiveness and the sinfulness and the shockingness, is that the right word? Watch for, associated with pedophilia, Watch for it to try to be diminished by popular culture. As it gets diminished, it will be welcomed. There's nothing new under the sun. I promise you this. Watch for a P at the end of the alphabet soup. I think we got about five or ten years. Then we see in Ephesus a disintegration of moral values and absolute truths. 
There's, there's polytheism, isn't there? There is no absolute right or wrong. But what do they all have in common? They're all living high on the hog, as we would say in Alabama and the South. They're all very economically prosperous. They have no concerns in the world for their safety. They have no concerns in the world for where they're going to get their next meal. They don't know suffering, but they have all these problems right here, don't they? Does that sound familiar? And it fits in line with this uh, Scottish historian said that civilizations go through these cycles. And the top of the cycle is bondage. And then spiritual faith. That spiritual faith gives the people courage to throw off the shackles of bondage. And they experience liberty. And then that liberty brings to them abundance. And then we start getting over here. That abundance brings selfishness. That selfishness brings complacency, then apathy, then dependence, and back to bondage. Where do you think we, are, as the United States of Americans, are at on this cycle? Dependence. That's terrifying, isn't it? Let's tie this to the United States of America now. Symptoms of a failing society. And I don't want you to paint this doom and gloom picture. We are citizens of a kingdom that is eternal. We are not citizens of this world. And I'm going to prove it to you from the Bible here in a minute. But the United States of America, history shows, will likely fail. It will likely disintegrate. It is not the promised land. Now, it is, there are some great things about our nation. And our founders did some wonderful things. But we have an obsession with mystical, spiritual, and unseen realms with little grounding in truth. There is a, most sociologists will say this, in the United States of America, in the West, we are leaving the secular era and moving to a post-secular era. An era that we have this obsession with things that we know that are out there, but we don't know how to get to them. And we'll do things like um, psychedelic drugs, or we'll go to uh, psychics, um, we'll, we'll, we'll dabble in the occultic practices, we'll do... Um, uh, meditative things to try to tap into the unseen realm because we know that it's there and we don't buy the bill of goods that secularism sold us we don't know how to get there we have this obsession with it and very little grounding in God's word of how to get there and how to interact with that and you're gonna see that more and more in the next 5 10 15 years this obsession with spirituality and people say well I'm not religious but I'm spiritual be cautious of that be very cautious. It's kind of like the Oprah Winfrey, the shack theology, you know, that it's all good. You have this path. You just need to find this path. You need to find yourself in this path. And that's the goal, right? It's personal enlightenment. And you need a spirit guide to get you there. Be very weary of that. Be very cautious of that. Do we have perversion of sexuality in every way in the United States of America? Yeah. There's a clip I saw on the news where a reporter walks up to a guy who's at a, a rally at like one of these um, pride rallies. And he says, how many genders are there? And the guy goes, I don't, I have no idea. I just got here. <laughs> really? So we're at that level of confusion. Like simple science and biology. Why are we there? 
because of the perversion of godly sexuality. The perversion of something that was given to us as a gift, but then was perverted by human beings. And obviously a mass confusion over gender identity and gender preference that was going on extensively in the Roman world. It's not new. <laughs> That's just what a carnal society does. And then another symptom of a failing society, again, is the emphasis on physical pleasure with the product being just increased emptiness and hopelessness. Do you see that in the United States of America? Some of the greatest, funniest, most beautiful and handsome, wealthiest people, they take their lives. And we're always like, man, if I had all that, I wouldn't have done that. Why do they do that? Because they've experienced everything there is to experience, and they realize, I still don't have hope. I still don't know why I'm here. So what do they do? They terminate their life. They're hopeless. Yeah, I think, I think things are bleak for the United States of America in some ways. Is it a ship that could be righted? Perhaps. Yeah. I hope. I pray for that. Right? I pray for that. But just in case, I want to remind you guys, using Ephesians chapter 2, because again, we find ourselves in the city of Ephesus. Turn there with me real quick. Ephesians chapter 2. You used to be dead because of your sins and acts of disobedience. Paul is writing this to people in Ephesus, believers in Ephesus. He says, you walked in the present age and you obeyed the ruler of the powers of the air who is still at work among the disobedient. Indeed, we all once lived this way. We followed the passions of our old nature and obeyed the wishes of our old nature in our own thoughts. You see that going on today? In our natural condition, we were headed for God's wrath, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy and loves us with such intense love that even when we were dead because of our acts of disobedience, he brought us to life along with the Messiah. It is by grace that you have been delivered. That is, God raised us up with Messiah Yeshua, and he seated us with him in heaven in order to exhibit in the ages to come how infinitely rich in his grace, how great in his kindness toward us who are united with Messiah Yeshua. For you have been delivered by grace through trusting. And even this is not your own accomplishment, but it's God's gift. You were not delivered by your own actions so that you can't boast, for we are God's workmanship, his making. We're like his, his little like, like carvings that he's doing created in union with Messiah Yeshua for a life of good deeds already prepared by God for us to do. Therefore, remember your former state, you Gentiles by birth in the city of Ephesus, going to the library, visiting the brothel, worshiping the goddess of Artemis, Nike, Diana, you name it, doing all these horrible things. Remember your former state. You are called the uncircumcised by those because of an operation in their flesh are called the circumcised. You, at that time, you had no Messiah. You were estranged from the national life of Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants that embodied God's promise. You were in this world and you didn't have hope and you were without God. But now, you who are once far off have been brought near through the shedding of Messiah's blood. For he himself is our peace. He has made us both one 
And he's broken down the middle wall which divided us by destroying in his own body the enmity that was occasioned by the law with his commandments set forth in dogma, in ordinances, man-made ordinances. He did this in order to create a union with himself from the two groups, one single new humanity, and thus make peace. And in order to reconcile to God both in a single body by being executed on a stake as a criminal, and thus in himself killing that enmity. Also when he came, he announced good news of peace to you far off and peace to those nearby. News that through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, here's the key, and this is for you guys today in the United States of America. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. On the contrary, even if the Roman Empire falls, which it did, even if Ephesus port dries up, which it did, even if the temple of Artemis crumbles, which it did, on the contrary, you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's family. Amen. You have been built on the foundation of the emissaries and the prophets, with the cornerstone being Yeshua, Messiah himself. In union with him, the whole building is held together. And it's growing into a holy temple in unison with the Lord. Yes, in union with him, you yourselves are being built together into a spiritual temple and a dwelling place for God. Wow. Amen. You see thank that? God. Let's pray and then we'll go to Q&A. Abba, Father, I thank you for this opportunity to be a fellow citizen of your family. I thank you that you desire to dwell with us through the shedding of Messiah's blood. We have that opportunity. And if there's anyone in the sound of my voice right now that has not put their trust and their faith in Messiah and is chasing after the vapors and the hopeless things of this world, that they would repent and they would turn to you and give their allegiance to you as king. I pray all this in Messiah Yeshua's name. Amen. Yeah. Let's take a few minutes, guys. We're running a little bit behind. Let's take a few minutes and do Q&A, though, and, and as the, they distribute the things for... You guys have any questions or comments for me? Was it quiet today? Was it the running behind comment made you quiet? A lot of information? Oh, hopefully not too much. Yeah, that's a good question. Marvin asked, for those who couldn't hear, where does the term church come from? Uh, church is um, the best English equivalent for the idea of an ecclesia. And um, yeah, um, let's do this. I want to teach one week during this series on did the church start in Acts 2 and is the church a new thing? And we'll kind of go into that a little bit and I'll break down some of that language, but I have to find a good week to do that. Um, someone asked me the other day too, uh, after we're done with Acts, where will we go? And that's a really good question. After we're done with Acts, I think we got about three or four months before we can restart the Torah portion cycle. So Bobby and Adrian and myself kind of put our heads together and we actually um, decided that let's use those last three or four months before the Torah portion restarts and we jump back into the Torah portions. Let's go through some fundamentals of our faith and let's talk about things like Shabbat. Let's talk about things like... Um, kosher talk about like the feast days and some good fundamental things like that and go into those and uh and use up the rest of that time to do that so uh oh yeah ariana's not here ariana so graciously bakes our bread every week and she uh is um keep keep them in your prayers obviously she lost her grandmother for those who don't know so yeah
That's a good question. I don't know. Yeah, you got me stumped. He, he at some point joins Paul uh, because it does change the first person. It starts saying, we traveled here and we traveled there. I don't know that I can say with certainty where he's at right now in, Luke, in Acts 19 unless someone knows. I don't know off the top of my head. That's a good question. He might be back in Jerusalem. I don't know for sure, but maybe someone saw that. So your homework is to read Acts chapter 20. And things are about to get interesting, and I'll be teaching on Acts chapter 20 next week. So, any other comments or questions, guys? Yeah, the Hebrew equivalent of church, Kinesiot. Yeah, Kinesiot or, um, or Kahal is another Hebrew equivalent. Kahal is like an assembly. Yeah. All right, yeah. You know, this is something that Mary Jane and I were talking about last night, but we tend in the Messianic movement, I think, to really focus on the Torah portions and the Tanakh. Yeah. To almost to the exclusion of the Gospels, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. um, that's what I really have enjoyed about this. Yeah. And at Sukkot, when we took these different Gospels, you know, like yeah. Mark and all that, that was really good. Good. Thank you. It was Thank refreshing. you. Refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Amen. Thank you. Oh. Well, thank you. That really means a lot. You know, I've gone to church. It means a lot. I've gone to church and I've been a preacher twice and I've listened to a lot of things. Oh, well, thank you. They don't get all the background information. They don't bring things together. Yeah, yeah. Remind me, I'll give you that $20 bill in a little bit. Oh, is this thing on? I'm sorry. Yeah. As far as you personally, like, example when you go out and you talk to somebody for the first time or you are, you, um, are able to share with them mm -hmm. about your faith um, yeah. do you start with Yeshua is that where you like like he, he get, did the same thing everywhere he went whether they were Jews or Gentiles wherever he always shared the gospel yeah, and yeah. Yeshua started there and then worked from there out yeah it just depends it depends and she's asking whenever I share with someone and I guess I know someone on the streets or maybe at a workplace or whatever um, and I share them my faith. Uh, do I start with Yeshua or do I start with something else? Or and the answer to that is just it depends. Um, sometimes uh, most people in this area, especially, are going to be cultural Christians that are Christian by bumper sticker only, uh, like the Jesus take the wheel kind of people, and they don't really understand their faith. That's because this area is so saturated with a watered down version of the gospel, and so uh, it just depends. Um, now, if I were to go to Uganda and talk to a Muslim, that would be completely different, you know, because they never really heard the gospel. So in that situation, uh, it, like let's say their worldview is not Christian or culturally Christian, I'm going to start with number one, ascertaining their worldview, and then in a very loving way, undermining their worldview, and poking holes in their worldview, and showing that your worldview is unsustainable, according to science, according to laws of reason and logic, um, and many, many times that's either agnosticism or atheism. It's just not, it's not, it can't hold water. So I undermine that worldview. And then I replace that worldview with one that is viable. And I say, here's one that does hold water. Here's one that is viable. There's a creator. The creator has spoken. He's given oracles to human beings. And those oracles are tested through time. And they've proven themselves to be written and, and divine, uh, have divine authorship. And oh, by the way, that the, the, the oracles of the creator have commandments in them. And... I've broken them and you've broken them. 
and the punishment of that. So I kind of take them through that sometimes, but it's, it's more rare. And number one prerequisite is having a relationship with a person and showing that you love them yeah. and doing, doing acts of kindness, physical acts of kindness for them. So that's, that's a prerequisite. Did that answer your question? Okay, cool. Susie? Going along with what she was saying, um, the Jewish people that I have shared with over time, yeah. a lot of them, I've had to first get them to the idea that there is a God to mm. believe in. Mm. Because so many don't believe in God, period. Yeah. And of course, like, well, the Holocaust and a lot yeah. of other excuses and reasons, but so that's step one with a lot of people. Yeah. Just getting them to acknowledge the fact that there is a divine God creator. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah. Bob. I was just thinking about Martin's question about the church. I know German yeah. in Germany you would say the Kirche. Yeah. And yeah. We pull a lot of our words like kindergarten and such from yeah. German and from France and whatever. So I'm wondering if it came, you know I think it might be Latin of origin. Yeah. Um but I think it also has a connection with the idea of like circuit circus. It's the same kind of etymological root. It's like a gathering. Um, but yeah, I, I haven't studied that recently, so I can't tell you for sure, but that's a, definitely a theory. So any other questions or comments? All right.